podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are talking about... We're talking about writing scenarios. We are. We're talking about how we do it, um, how we go about doing it, um, and what we do with them when we've done them. Well, let's start off by talking about the different types of scenarios we write or have written. I, I think the one thing that the three of us have got in common, they, you know, the, the way we've already kind of got started writing scenarios properly, um, is by writing convention scenarios. Mm. And convention mm-hmm. scenarios are very particular beasts because you're trying to deliver an experience in generally three or four hours. You're trying to prov- provide a, um, a framework that will allow people to do their own thing, but at the same time is directed enough that it won't just flounder if people, you know, don't grab hold of it and run and you need to provide characters mm-hmm. yeah because people don't want to be sitting down and having to roll up characters in general um, they want to have uh, pre-generated characters sit down be given a character and, and ready to go on, on, on off the cuff yeah yeah now, there's a few games I can think of where you can where you can sit down and do character gen things like Dead of Night where you can do it in 30 seconds flat yes. by just going number 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 done yeah. But anything as complicated as, say, or re- relatively comp- complicated, such as BRP or World of Darkness, no, you, you don't want to spend upwards of well, an hour or more sat there number crunching. And you may want to give people, here's your character, you've got another 100 points to spend on skills, put them where you want, something mm-hmm. like that, just to give them a bit of room to personalise it. And one of the advantages of doing this, again, for a a short, intense uh, convention scenario, is the fact that you can provide backstories, links between the characters, links to the scenario or the events of the scenario, and make sure the whole thing moves with a bang. Yeah. Um, And And there's a helicopter. Yeah. So they've been looking for you in your flamethrower. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's making the shed vibrate. Guest appearance by... Yeah, I may start up that bit about the carriage. Oh, I quite like the helicopter. <laughs> so if you're wondering, Matt, not, that was a helicopter, not not a fault with our microphone. <laughs> God, we're fucking professionals, aren't we? <laughs> no, I've got to start the bit about the... Okay. Yeah. You start again, I'll leave it in, but you start again. Is that helicopter coming back round? It is. Oh my God, <laughs> it's the black helicopter. As long as it's not the yellow helicopter. Yeah, get out my helicopter guide quickly. There's another one. Military transport, maybe. Must be. Yeah, they're usually military. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the zombie apocalypse has started. You've seen people using their iPhones in the street recently. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, um, one advantage of creating characters for a convention scenario is the fact that you can tie them in with the backstory uh, of the scenario itself. You can provide links between the characters. You can give them strong motivations. You can put all those things in there that will make sure the scenario goes off with a bang. Mm-hmm. 
And you know, I find sometimes when writing scenarios for you know, other things that I miss that aspect of it because it's, it's, it's nice being able to preload all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, that, that's why so many of the scenarios that I've written for publication actually have pre-gens in them. Because, well, A, because they started out as convention scenarios, and B, because, you know, they, they, they're fundamentally about those characters. Yeah, I, I find that, um, again, probably from the, act, the aspect of having written so many convention scenarios myself, that a good, scenario, a good enjoyable scenario has a plausible reason why those characters are involved. Because so many other pre-generated, um, well, not pre-generated, pre-written scenarios that we've played that don't have them can have anyone from any walk of life, and they just seem, I don't know, not disconnected, but... Arbitrary. Yeah, it, why, why are these people here? Like, well, I think you've made the comment previously of random haberdasher goes to save the world. Yeah. That what what makes these people intrinsically involved? It's just, oh, they happen to be the right place or the wrong place at the right time, or... Because they got a letter from their uncle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, or their good friend, yeah. Or their good friend, Jackson <laughs> Elias. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Well, I think um, some scenarios will accommodate any characters, but as you say, a lot of stories, it kind of demands that it's those particular people that are involved in the story. Yeah, um, but yeah, you can take a different approach, certainly, if you're writing a one-shot that's designed for uh, any characters. Now, I, go, going back, first of all, to the idea of it being about particular characters, if you're looking at writing a scenario for your particular group um, you know, to fit into a campaign as an interlude or something like that, then you've got the advantage there that you know the characters, and if you're writing this for your group, then obviously you, know, you should tailor this to those characters. Mm. You should make the scenario about those characters, about the things they're passionate about, about the people they care about, you know, about the world they inhabit. The scenario should not exist in a vacuum. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as writing scenarios that will work with any group, um, I mean, that, that's certainly possible to do, and you know, a lot of published scenarios uh, follow that mm-hmm. form. I mean, one classic way of doing that is to make it about a place. Um, or you know, a place with a um, a whole kind of backstory of its own that you know the, the the players will get involved with, or the characters will get involved with. I was thinking about this earlier, and I feel that a lot of the scenarios that I've written for conventions, I was kind of paralleling uh, scenarios with films or with other you know storytelling uh, things like TV or, or whatever. And it seemed to me that a lot of the scenarios that I've written for conventions are kind of like high-concept films. Mm. So there's a, there's a strong concept in there that really dominates the scenario and the characters that are in it are kind of integral to it, really. They're, yes. they're all part of it. If we think of some high-concept movies, like I mean, like Jurassic Park, you know, there are dinosaurs. What, what would happen if, if, if somebody recreated dinosaurs? So you've got, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of people at the dinosaur... Uh, centre, the, the island and so on you've got the professor and the, you know, whatnot. whereas if you look at a film like The Godfather it's not really a high concept movie, it's just a it's a, it's a complex film um, with lots of different characters and the interplay between various factions and so on, and that's more like a campaign, I think it's mm. more like an ongoing story that unfolds over quite a long time where it's a high concept thing, it's got a, a start middle and end, um, and it kind of packs it all in to a you know, once it's finished, it's finished. Yes. Hmm. Upon yeah. the ever-growing list of sequels. <laughs> well, 
There's a reason why those sequels are rarely as good as the original, though. <laughs> well, The Godfather Part Two is a rare exception there. Yeah, but that's that's my point. That's not a high concept no. movie. So the scenarios that I've done, I mean, they've tended to have a sort of a, a sort of strong concept, and once they're over, they kind of in, involve a a particular set of characters that are integral to that story. And once they're over, you wouldn't really use those characters again, and you couldn't really have your regular characters mm-hmm. enter that story. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, they're just integral to that really there's actually one thing that I've been thinking of um, fairly recently for a project I've been working on that initially started off as they're all interlinked by a common theme so I'm what, going the again. characters or the scenarios the scenarios uh-huh. but um, there is there would be the potential that in one of those scenarios later on that you could use characters from each one of the scenarios that precedes it to present the kind of the coda, the, the thing that wraps everything together. Mm-hmm. Then the thing that, well, the problem that I found with that was potentially, you know, what happens if in an X, Y, or Z group that well that person didn't make it through this scenario, yeah. that player character wasn't used <laughs> in the other one. So they, no, that it would be a nice idea, but just completely impractically just wouldn't work. Yeah. But you could have characters that were related to those other ones or had some other connection. So at least you have that that line of sympathy, but you don't have the direct link. Mm. But, but for people writing scenarios for their uh, their home campaigns, then yes, I mean, you, you can certainly play to that particular strength and draw in those elements, those fallen characters. <laughs> you know, uh, something, someone's character who hit zero sanity a while back and has gone off to be an NPC, uh, you can bring them back as, as a character. Um, a bit like what's happened with us in Horror on the Express fairly recently, mm. with Paul's previous character. Yes. <laughs> Admittedly, he ended his um, return with a uh, was it a champagne bucket on his head. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'm sure he looked very dashing in it. <laughs> so all of these scenarios have got to come from somewhere. Um, but the, the, the raw idea you know, comes from some form of inspiration. So, are you, Matt, what, what, what kinds of things do you draw on? For example, uh, well, where do you start yeah. from? Yeah. yeah, it honestly depends on context. If it's something that I've been Invited to write for, let's say I've been given a hypothetical situation. You're going to be writing us um, an adventure about a source book that's going to be set in Spain, for example. Um, I would think, okay, I know virtually nothing about Spain. I never went there on holiday. I don't know the language. I don't know much of the geography. I don't know much of the history of politics. I would start by doing my research. I'd do a general overview, have a look at the area as a map um, on the on the map on the globe. Um, pick out cities that I think, yeah, that, that place has got an interesting name. What's what's based there? And then start to basically work my way down, drill deeper and deeper and deeper into certain details. If I find a place that I like, just geographically by the look of it, I'll start looking at its recent history, start looking at more an overview of the um, of the area, where did the place come from as a settlement, etc. And then if there's more interesting people, for example, then start to use those as what, what part they played in like Spanish society, for example or development of politics, culture, art. So you're getting uh, a lot of setting uh, detail, period detail. Um, When do you then start to think that would make an interesting scenario? Is it just something that kind of um, inspires you? You see there's some myth uh, or or story in this particular town of something that happened and you think all that could be a mythos element? Yeah, potentially. It It honestly depends on what I stumble across. So you just react to what you find in the research. Exactly. I'll I'll start with research because I generally like to have a a good, well-grounded 
or as um, I think it was actually a line from Doctor Who, I like my lie to be shrouded in truth, that I like to present as real a scenario as possible, at least factually real anyway. Because, you know, if you're going to do something historical, there's always going to be some nerd out there who goes, oh, that wasn't like this in this particular time, and knows the whole ins and outs of your setting better than you do. Boy, if I had that happening, convention scenarios enough. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, so that that's one approach is to start from uh, to pick a a period or a place or a combination of the two or a particular event. You know, we might pick the sinking of the Titanic and set a scenario there, uh, and then you kind of so you're delving down deep into that until you find something that sparks off your imagination, really, yeah. and then you sort of work. Up, up, upwards again from there into a scenario. Exactly. Uh, that's that's if I was given the the confines of the campus. So what if you with. what if you weren't, you know, um, if you hadn't got to deliver a pitch based around that sort of confi- those confines? Yeah, if you were just coming up with a scenario to run for the fun of it. Yeah, in which case I'd draw from my own interests. So I'd start again looking at potentially events in history or places that I know I was interested in. So I think I think think of it more like a film director. But a similar um, approach. You yeah, kind of pick sim- something you're interested in and do the research. Yeah, rather than having rather than have it directed at me. Yeah. But then it definitely comes to say from a more from a what's like photo um what's the word I'm looking for? Um location scout aspect. Yeah. I'll I'll try and pick the location of the scenario first. I might have a kernel of an idea of what I want to happen, but I like to know where I'm setting something to begin with. I like to know I like to know the stage of which I'm setting my drama on, as it were. Yeah. What about you, Scott? Where do you? How do you begin? It's it's different almost every time. Um, sometimes ideas will come to me because of you know things that have happened in my life uh, that I've you know I, I, I have sort of started a, a train of thought going, and I sort of think, oh right, yeah, I can use that. Um, sometimes yeah, it'll be things that I've just read, um, and and. In situations like this, when I don't have an idea to tie that straight into, when I've just got this germ of an interesting idea or a fact or whatever, then I'll just write it down in my notebook and save it for later. And it'll, you know, it'll sometimes it'll be there for years before I suddenly, you know, think, oh, I, I fancy writing a scenario for such and such. You know, have I got any ideas? Oh yeah, there's this old one in the notebook. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do something there. Sometimes, yeah, it is, you know, as Matt does, events in history. Um, yeah, for example, when I was doing the, the Time and Tide scenarios, I, I looked at various bits of American history that I was, you know, 20th century American history I was interested in and, and went for looking for mythos spins on those. Um, but yeah, and sometimes, and sometimes it is, yes, you know, working to a, um, uh, working to a particular, uh, idea that's been given to me and trying to develop that. So sometimes it's working up from research up a bit like Matt's doing it. And sometimes it's, um, getting an idea that just kind of comes to you as a sort of spark yeah. and developing that. Well, and sometimes, like I say, it is just something that happens, which, which sparks off a train of thought. And the... The single grimmest one I can think of uh, it was um, some years back. I wrote a Should few. Should we put a warning that, here? If yeah, this well, is your grimmest one. Well, it, it, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's not grim in terms of yeah. They, they, there's got, not going to be anything particularly offensive, but it's just grim. You'll understand in a moment. Um, uh, so some years back, I wrote a convention scenario for Unknown Armies called Lampposts and Bloom. Oh, yes. Um, which uh, ended up being published in Proto-Dimension magazine, so it is out there free of charge if you want to Dis- read it. Discussion of which got people kicked off of forums. <laughs> yes. So carry on. And, um... <laughs> yeah, that's, that is true. Um... <laughs> 
The genesis for that was a, a sad and and un, unpleasant story, which is the office in which I was working at the time. Um, there was an announcement that went round the office. Uh, the, I mean, and this was a small office. There were about 25, 30 of us working in it at the time, all open plan. There was an announcement that one of the guys who'd worked there had just died in a car accident. I, I started discussing this with some of the other people I worked with, and none of us knew who he was. No, none of us could picture him, you know, in this this very small environment. You know, this guy has suddenly died out of our midst, and we had no idea who he was. Wow. Um, you know, there were a couple of people who worked, you know, sat next to him who had some rough idea, but you know, he he he'd, he'd just be this cipher. That that got me thinking, mm. and it got me thinking down certain uh, you know, lines of thought, which ended up becoming Lamp Person Bloom. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was a horrible genesis, and, you know, but it was just that idea that got into my head. And, uh, you know, I found myself, you know, after that becoming very, very uh, aware of all the, the, the bunches of flowers that people left by the sides of roads for road accidents. Because around the same time, a, a friend of mine died in a road accident, and I ended up leaving one of those myself. And... Um, yeah, it, it, again, you know, it's, it struck me looking at those. What you know, what are those really there for? What are they really doing? Yeah, those whole uh, all those flowers left on lampposts. I guess yeah. this happens in the states and other places in the world as well. But we see it quite a lot in Milton you know, Keynes, where there's lots yeah. of roundabouts. And uh... one thing that actually um, brought me back to that particular scenario, because I remember I remember playing it the first time round as well. Um, the up in a little bit outside where my uncle lives, um, just outside Nottingham. Um, there's a, there must be a local campaign because I've not seen the um, signs anywhere else, but there are these yellow signs uh, with flowers tied to lampposts that just says, kill your speed. Oh boy, yeah. Yes, that's effective. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, the, the simple answer is the idea can come from anywhere. You, know, you just find mm. something that stimulates your imagination and run with it. How about you, Paul? Uh, pretty much like your latter example, really. I think that I start with a, a concept, just something that I think is just something that grabs me, really. Um, I would start looking for an idea or a concept that I find interesting. And then almost always I kind of glue on the period and the setting afterwards. Mm. Um, so a lot of my scenarios I've kind of developed and then thought, should it be twenties or should it be modern day or what? You know, should it be America or should it be Britain? And and often it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, so, a bit like the moon child, you can set that as you put in the intro. You can set that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, the moon child, the one of one of the nameless horrors um, scenarios. Yeah, and, and likewise my other one really that could be set modern day or nineteen twenties equally. I mean, if we restrict ourselves to two settings, could be set in. Britain or America doesn't really matter. Yeah, I, I, I found the same thing with Lampos and Bloom. The only, yeah, that could, the, be, the, that could be any town anywhere. Well, I mean, the, the only thing, the, the only practical thing that made a difference is uh, I had a playtest of it by someone based in the US who ran it with an American group, and it ended up being completely different. And the one thing that changed it was access to handguns. 
Oh, okay. And you know the, the fact that you know they considered it natural to have you know, guns around the house and yeah. you know, the other characters being armed. So it certainly makes you into a very different game. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that, especially when certain NPCs turn up and the confrontation at the end yeah. can go very differently. Yeah. yeah. With this whole discussion of um, starting points, when I was with the uh, Mike Mason used to run the, the Cult of Keepers, and there was about seven or eight of us in that in that kind of um, keepers group that would run scenarios at conventions, um, several conventions in in Britain and one in Germany and so on that we'd run, and. I kind of, by doing that, I kind of got exposed to how other people write their scenarios from the ground up. Um, you know, we tried collaborating sometimes. It was a, a real eye-opener to me that not only how differently people run the same scenario, so the way the Cult Keepers work was, you know, we'd, each of us would write scenarios, put them into Mike, Mike would read them, and um, sort of pick the ones that we were going to run at, you know, Battlemasters or whatever convention, and we'd run, I think, usually one of our own and one of someone else's. Um, so we'd get that through, sent through to us a few weeks before the convention, get to read it through, maybe play test it, um, and then uh, run it at the convention. So not only do we see how different games we run very differently by different keepers, mm. but also we'd get to see how they how they write them. And the things that sort of struck me was that one of the guys would pick a monster or a god, you know, look through the... Um, rule book and sort of say oh nobody's run a scenario with a gug or something like that let's do one about gugs and that'd be a starting point hmm. somebody else would would, would start throwing around ideas for a scenario and he immediately kind of fixed on oh let's make it 1950s and um, let's have it you know I don't know off the top of my head uh, let's have it about you know some military group or something like that and details were kind of being layered in, and I was that that was totally getting me lost because I couldn't focus on. I was like, well, this is nothing to do with the scenario. This is just all the details because the way I worked was from coming up with the idea and then layering those details on afterwards and starting with those details just kind of made it really difficult for me to, you know, get to the the, the scenario. So what I would say to the listener is, you you probably, you know. If, if you're running games, then you're, you're probably coming up with your own ideas for scenarios. And don't think that there's any one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, there's no formula. And if there is a formula, throw it out and do it, do it your own way. Because, you know, you might find that if you're looking for loads of details, you know, about some, you know, you fix on some event or, or whatever, because that's what you've been told to do, you know, like the... Like I said earlier, you might pick the, the sinking of the Titanic and then try and make a scenario about it. Maybe that's not going to work for you. Maybe you need to come up with a, an idea. Or, or another keeper would um, come up with a, a kind of a, a gruesome, maybe gruesome is not the right word, but a weird moment. And then kind of build the whole scenario around that. You know, that would be really bizarre if such and such happened. You know, this one kind of picture yes. in your mind. Mm -hmm. And how do you build all up to that? Another common one was to kind of almost come up with the... Either with a starting scene. So uh, you're all in um, green overalls in a pit. And as you look up, you, there's a hole in the ceiling. But you can't remember how you got in here. Mm. That's a difficult place to start from, though. Because then as the keeper, you've got to think... As the person writing it, you've got to think, well, how did they get in there? Yeah. Even worse than that is you think of the ending. 
<laughs> yes. And that's a killer. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if they're all in a bus at the end and it's hanging over the cliff? <laughs> I've got an idea, guys. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but how do you build back from that and make it plausible? Yeah, that, that, that like you say, is most difficult. I, I, I think out of all the approaches, that is the one that is most likely to end up in failure. Because, it could be great fun, but yeah, but, man, but, but, but you hard. can just never predict what they, the players are going to do. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the one with with you know, a strong start scene. I've done that myself a number of times. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've quite often turned up at conventions with nothing more mm. than a bunch of pre-generated characters with you know a few hooks. In them and a strong opening scene. It's sort of bang. Here's a problem. What are you going to do with it? Well, it's class, um, classic zero prep, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, and the rest of it, yes, is improvised because yeah, I've got no idea where it's going to go from there. It's up to the players to find the solution to the problem. Hmm. The other one that, um, that, that that sort of comes to mind was uh, I remember Kerry saying uh, one time, you know, wouldn't it be good um, among the, the the group of keepers if we could move players from one game to another? Yes. And that just sort of started me working on um, the game that came, became Gatsby and the Great Race. And that was the whole premise for that. There was no kind of thought that it was 1920s or that, you know, all the, the aspects of the game. It was just how, how could I make a game that did that? Uh, and that was, that was the sort of genesis for that. Mm. Still not played that. Well, <laughs> it's quite demanding to run, but uh, yeah. one day. Yes. Well, find 31 other players. Oh. <laughs> You're determined now. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, once we got these ideas, yeah, you know, the, the next thing I, I guess, yeah, you know, for you, Matt, then obviously the next thing is the research, mm-hmm. um, which almost beginning point one, really. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, how do you actually go about researching your scenarios? Uh, mainly by having a fairly good library. Uh, I've got a fairly extensive collection of books at home, but then, as most people in this wonderful age do, I hit Wikipedia. Um, at which point I have a look down the recommended reading list. Um, good example was when one of the re- one of the scenarios that I did probably did the most research for recently was um, called An Amaranthine Desire, which I started off by looking at Wikipedia to get the list for recommended reading, then seeing multiple links that went off to documentaries. There was a time team dig that was done there, so I streamed that off YouTube, watched that, uh, went along to... Um, the place. And this but is set in Dunwich, we should say. Indeed, yes, the the Dunwich, not not the fake one, the real one. In in England, yeah, in Suffolk, yeah, lovely place. I mean, the drive down there was really nice. Yeah, well, you should, yeah. Well, that's mm-hmm. another layer of research that you did actually going to the place. Yeah, yeah. I went yeah. round there for a day. I wandered around, um, had dinner at the, um, had dinner at the Ship Inn, the White Ship on the on the <laughs> uh, on their symbol. Excellent. Uh, yeah, wandered around with my camera, took photos. Um, immersed myself in the area, went to the museum, probably poked the brain of the, the poor attendant there, drained him dry, and then went back home after about a good six or seven hours there. Yeah, I've done something similar, actually. I wrote a scenario a while back uh, that was set in a nuclear bunker, uh, so I went to Kelfton Hatch uh, for the day yeah. Uh, yeah. for a research trip and went around there. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> That's because yours could be set anyway. You just go, oh, I'll go down the road. There we go. <laughs> I'll just stay in my house. <laughs> no need to go outside. <laughs> There's enough horrible things going on in there. <laughs> yes. For a shed. For other ones that I can think of where I haven't been able to go to places, mm. I do like to get a feeling of what they look like beyond just looking at still still images. So there's there's one scenario that I've written which should be coming out hopefully sometime next year. 
um, that's set on the uh, the Wanghe, the Yellow River, that runs through central China. Uh, there was a documentary that was co-produced uh, and hosted by, I think it was South Korean television and the BBC back in the 70s or 80s. Um, the whole thing ran over about five or six DVDs. Wow. I managed, yeah, it's a long, it's a long old thing. Um, I managed to get a copy on eBay um, for a rel- relatively inexpensive price, and I sat down and watched everything that related to that particular mm. section of the river that I was looking at. So it gave me again an idea of culture, history, people, economy, everything I needed to give it a good grounding. In fact, um, brought books that were. A couple of them that were photo collections to show art of the area, and again, just still images that I could say at the table. Right, that's what you see in front of you, and hold open double page spread from this huge book. Um, and also, uh, doc- travel documentaries of people that had um, wandered around the area and recorded what they felt. And again, more more supplementary material than I could, that basically I could find that were considered to be the best books out there. In some instances, there haven't, uh, there haven't been many where there have been a good amount of research material. Like Clipperton Island, I can only find one book that was written extensively about that, but then I mined that for all the information it could give me. Yeah, absolutely. Listener, this illustrates how different things can be because I don't do any of that. <laughs> I, I, I do some of that. Well, you're, you're maybe in the middle because maybe yeah. I'm just totally lazy. We, we are one end of the other extreme to the other. Well, <laughs> that's good for that's good for for discussion, really, yeah. because I mean, if people are listening to you. And thinking, oh my god, that that sounds like an awful lot of work. It is. Um, <laughs> it is. You know, if 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 you like the sound of that and that appeals to you and that's what you want to do, then that's what you should be doing. But if you're thinking, oh, I don't know when I'll do all that. I'll just kind of make it up as I go along. Then you're kind of in my camp, and um, <laughs> I'm partly in mine. And it's it's not that one's better than the other, or I'm not. That's just different approaches. Yeah, it's just yeah. those different approaches. They, they, they work. They all uh, work. I mean, for my scenarios, you know, uh, dockside dogs. I watch Reservoir Dogs. That's the that's the reason. Do you want to get sued? <laughs> well, I'm not saying. You know, saying, could, I watched could it. Just they can't the get sued for watching it. Tarantino sues cancer charity project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my get out that I saw the charity. No, I, was, I was mainly thinking of the good Sim- the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror reference with the shinning, but anyway. <laughs> Gatsby was just the 1920s house. Um, like oh, yeah. I say, maybe I'm just lazy. I don't go in for a lot of research. Have, have you ever actually researched a scenario? Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this, is, this is the point where we're supposed to talk. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I do a bit. I mean, um, some scenarios I do absolutely zero research on. You know, again, lampposts in bloom. There was no research required for that whatsoever. But other times... Uh, yeah, if there's a location involved, if I'm lazy, I'll just look at Wikipedia uh, and um, you know come up with a, a few ideas there. Um, sometimes, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do a bit more research online. Yeah, you know, if I'm trying to describe the place where someone lives or you know a particular style of house or whatever, I'll take a look, for example, on real estate sites and try to find you know play houses in the appropriate area and sometimes floor plans and get ideas what they may look like. Sometimes I'll just set uh, stuff in places I know. Um, so, you know, when when I wrote Fairyland, for example, I set that in the Scottish borders because at the time I was spending a lot of time in the Scottish borders. Um, and, 
Yeah, again, for the research, I'll, I'll sometimes just draw on stuff that I've read anyway. You know, Fairyland, oh. I'd, I'd read a lot of Catherine Briggs at that stage, and so, you know, a lot of it is inspired by her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times, you know, it will demand actual proper research. Um, so, like the World War Cthulhu stuff I'm doing at the moment, uh, I am watching documentaries on the Special Operations Executive, uh, watching all sorts of wartime documentaries, uh, reading all sorts of books on the SOE, and you know, occasionally, for a bit of light relief, watching things like um, uh, The Guns of Navarone or Where Eagles Dare. But, um, yeah, it, it, it is just trying to, you know, in that, that, that's a very special demand. I mean, that is trying to create you know, a degree of verisimilitude, which you know, I may not be bothered about in another scenario. Well, once we've done that research, how do we actually develop these scenarios? Paul, how about you take this one? Uh, I start developing the story, uh, and it, it tends to be a lot of kind of wrangling about um, how the player characters are involved, how the story develops... And then very often, uh, because it's to do with a, a, a kind of a concept or an idea, I might sort of figure that, oh, actually, it's not about what I thought it was about. That's what the players perceive, but actually something totally different is going on, and I'll, I'll kind of restructure the whole thing. And often I'll, I'll get to that point and then sit down and talk to somebody else about it and kind of listen to what they say and then kind of develop it up from there. So... Um, I mean, go back to Dockside Dogs, for example. I think initially that was something totally different. Um, and I figured it was about a bunch of guys that had maybe done a robbery or something. And then, you know, later on I figured, oh, actually, I could make this, you know, based around the same premise as, Res- as Reservoir Dogs. So that was kind mm-hmm. of added on afterwards. Um, and then that becomes the whole thing. So I kind of, I don't really know where it's going to go, which makes it quite a laborious process. And then once I've kind of got that, then I can write it up if I'm writing it up. But I mean, do, you, do you tend to do all that before you end up taking it to play? Yeah. Or, right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're much the same there, aren't you? You do most of this work before you ever actually hit the gaming table, don't you, Matt? Yeah, I generally like to have a good firm idea of what's supposed to be happening on, and use the analogy, but on what's happening on the stage that I've built. And I like to have a good idea of I know where it's going to start. I have a few. I have an idea of a couple of potential routes it can take. How can weave between the different bangs that I throw at them, and an idea of not where I want it to end, but I know where it could end. I don't like to force players by saying, "Right, here are the rails. Go down that way. Yeah. You're not going. You're not going to look anywhere else. The plot's over here, guys. So look, follow the follow the trail breadcrumbs." I like to say at least have an idea of where they could go, not necessarily where I want them to go. Um, there's been well, um, one good case in point, uh, one game that I started um, with the premise of an investigator, um, a, a private investigation firm, that a woman comes to um, the group in a typical femme fatale type of role, lays um, a problem at their door, they try and solve it, only to find that effectively she's trying to get them to expose something that her husband is doing. Basically, insert a little bit of conspiracy type plot here. One of the players decides that he's just going to kill the girl outright because he's a knob. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, there's some knob who decided to just shoot um, the, um, the 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 plot delivery in question 
Well, yeah. did, 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 did he shoot? I thought you. Well, you with black flame, he basically yeah. immolated her. Well, yeah, I, I thought you, you, you mentioned that you'd given this this guy a, a character with pyrokinesis. Yes, and he was looking at the sheets, going, "Oh, I wonder what this does. I wonder how this works in practice." And then you throw an NPC at him. Oh, yeah, let's see. I'll set her on fire. <laughs> Pretty much exactly that. At which point, I'm thinking, great, the, that that just killed the scenario because she was the bad guy, essentially. Right. Um, what do you want to do? So the right thing, they killed the bad guy. Yeah, but they didn't know that at the time. It was just... It was literally the first fucking scene. He just shoots her. So, so the moral of this story, listener, is if you're playing any of Matt's uh, scenarios, kill the first NPC Matt, you meet. Matt. She was giving a monologue. <laughs> That's the other tip. You're playing a game, anybody gives a monologue, kill them. That's Matt's, Matt's topical tip for you. I was going to say, that's copyright me. That, that's what yeah. I do. <laughs> Always works. Yeah, but no, the, the rest of the scenario ended up just um, that they, they promptly turned on said moron who just immolated a girl. Um, they were, um, a couple of them got beaten up in the, um, in the resulting combat and they went down to the hospital, at which point thought, yeah, there's plenty of stuff in Heaven and Earth that's set at the Potter's Lake Hospital. Let's run with that! And just threw that at them for the rest of the evening. <laughs> But yeah, the, the, yeah, you can go drastically off the rails. Yes, yeah. but but no, I mean there, there is a serious point to be taken off that <laughs> out of that, which is you know it, again this goes to the whole idea of trying to work towards a given endpoint. You've got no guarantee of what's going to happen in the game, so you know if if you're writing a scenario, you know you've got to try to have this flexibility in there. You you, you don't have single points of failure, and you don't have any expectation that will go down a particular path because that'll lead to, fr- to frustration for you and the players. Well, I'd say that's an important part. We were talking about how how you develop scenarios. Um, from the idea to the kind of the, the, the state that we, in which you run them, um, and I'd say that's a very important aspect of it is that I go through it and think, what if? Mm-hmm. So I think, what if they did this now? What if they did that? What if when I mm-hmm. tell them this, they do that? Um, and I tried to go through a variety of eventualities and think, you know, is that kind of covered? If they to- totally lose all motivation at this point, have I got something that I would bring into the game to sort mm-hmm. of get them back yeah. on the on in, into the play? Yes. Yeah, as, as Scott will attest for having edited one of my scenarios, A Message of Art, would I, I see it when I look down at it from a dispassionate perspective. I look at it as bit, being a bit like a logic diagram, that it is essentially yes. what happens to NPC X if Y has done this or yeah. Z has done that, yeah. and basically plot out any and all eventualities that I can think of. Yeah, I, I, I tend to abstract it a bit more with uh, just saying, you know, th- this NPC has got this motivation uh, and then leave it up to the Keeper to interpret that. Mm-hmm. So so rather than, you know, giving the Keeper instructions to follow, it's just, sort of, you know, here's this plot element, throw it into the game, mm-hmm. see where it goes. Yeah, so some Keepers i found are very... They love that kind of degree of freedom, but then there's some others that I know, yeah. but this is probably why I tailor to this school of thought, is because I know more in the latter, um, the latter half that want that safety net there. They yeah. they might then, in um, someone else might go, oh, that's an interesting way that it could run, but then just go off and do their own thing, which is perfectly fine. I mean, I've done that with published scenarios enough. But th- there are those that want that safety net, so I provide it for them. Well, there's a big difference between writing it for yourself and writing it for someone else. Oh, yes. And writing yeah. it for publication. So, so, listeners, if you're just writing it for yourselves and you're developing an idea that can be quite a, a, a sketchy set of notes that only you would understand um, the meaning of. 
we need to get a photocopy of some of Scott's postcard size or post-it note bullet points. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that actually ties in with what I was going to say about how I develop my ideas, which is, you know, I, I, I work very differently than the, the way you two do uh, in this respect, in that, you know, the first time I run a game that I'm working on, I'll have almost nothing prepared. Um, I'll, yeah, if it's a convention game, I'll have the, the, the player characters prepared, I'll have a few ideas for NPCs, you know, uh, a, a few bangs that I can throw in. If you're not familiar with the term bang, a bang is basically just an event you throw into the game that the player characters have got to respond to. Um, or else. They, yeah, they, they can't ignore, but it gives them you know, freedom of choice as to how they deal with it. Um, and then what I'll have is you know, I'll try to have a strong opening scene that sets up the initial conflict or problem and then you know, throws the whole thing uh, into motion. And so what I do is, you know, and this applies much more to developing stuff for publication, but you know, it can also apply to, you know, if, if you're writing up a scenario for use at a convention and testing it with your, your group at home first, for example, um, is that, um, you know, I start off very, very light on that front, uh, then I'll run it a couple of times, and then that will give me an idea as, you know, as to, A, which bits of it are actually important, and, and B, what some of the possible outcomes are. And what, what I find, you know, because I tend to run the same scenario a lot of conventions, is I'll tend to find that there are a bunch of fairly regular outcomes that come out of it, and a, a bunch of fairly regular paths and things that turn out to be important, and quite often things that I thought were going to be vital, you know, no one ever goes near and stuff like that. So, you know, th then I'll just pick out those bits that are important, I'll write those up as details, and then put in some details as to, you know, how it might all pan out. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that before, especially in some of the playtest things that provided some of the best parts of a scenario that I found, mm. because as no plot will survive contact with the enemy. I mean, I mean, playing players, but as soon as they sit down, they will take it in the, any direction that you hadn't necessarily thought of. Yeah, they, they, this this is why I, I very rarely think of scenarios in terms of plots. I, I tend to think of them in terms of motivations, NPCs, locations, uh, and bangs. Mm. Because no. th those are the things that give you the flexibility to adapt to whatever the player characters do. Uh, if, if you write it as a plot, then you know the, if if you know the, the the player characters go entirely off that plot in the first couple of minutes, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. So I mean that sort of leads on to what what the essential elements of a scenario are. I mean I, I've just outlined what I think mine are. Um, I, what do you find when you're writing yours up, Paul? So when I come down to the basics of what I want, uh, I want an opening scene, something that's going to grab the players um, and, and grab their attention from the outset, whether it be action or whether it should be something very intriguing. Uh, I want a list of names um, that I can draw upon for NPCs. That can just be as simple as a list of names. Um, more likely than not, I want a set of scenes and I want a group of non-player characters with agendas. Um, and that can just be very simple. If I'm writing just for myself to run it, I don't need to write two paragraphs describing the non-player character. I can just say, um, fat, bold guy. And in my head, I, I know what that <laughs> is. Or I can say, um, you know, Pete that I went to school with. Nobody else is going to know what that is, but immediately for me, that's a whole character. <laughs> Um, but but I mean you also touched on something else interesting there, which is the agendas. Um, 
There's a good trick that uh, I noticed in your scenarios you picked up from Dogs in the Vineyard, um, which is something I've used a lot in scenarios as well. Um, if, if you've never played Dogs in the Vineyard, one of the lovely things about that game, there's lots of lovely things, is the fact that each NPC in it that you define has to want something from the player characters. And this this is part of creating it. I mean, you know, it, it can be you know that you want to prove that their mission is wrong, or you want to you know the NPC wants uh, the dogs to you know, sanction his you know, illicit marriage to his cousin or something like that. Yeah. But you know, it's something that you know the, the player characters have got to deal with. Yeah. And and I think this is this is really important in all scenarios um, that. Having NPCs who are driven to do stuff, and this will bring them into contact with the player characters. Particularly yeah. if they're driven to ask the player characters to do things for them. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a great one. Um, you know, my daughter's missing. I want you to find her. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you get that that player character, you know just how to play them. You and you're pull you're hooking in into the player characters and and drawing them into plot. And suddenly, you know, they've got. One person that wants them to do one thing, and another person that wants them to do another thing, and another, and then they've got something else they want to do, and, and they're all getting pulled in different directions. And you can just sit back and, and let them argue about what they're going to do. It's great. Yeah. yeah, particularly if there's no one right solution. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, I've certainly had some games where I've just had groups arguing. I think you were in one of these uh, Dogs in the Vineyard game. Where, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, where, they, where the, the, the group was arguing amongst themselves as to the right solution uh, to a particular problem for about two hours. Hours. And it's every time they looked in danger of coming up with a solution, I threw in another NPC who came up and said, "Well, what about this aspect of it?" Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> nah, me, 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 three definitely. NPC motivation is a huge thing. Likewise, what yeah. also, I'd like to have a good background that to me makes sense and gives a plausible reasons to why things are happening. That is a good solid grounding in why things are happening. And that maybe not necessarily that they all relate to the PCs, because one of the things that I love to do is set one PC going, a group of PCs going down one particular direction. They think, oh, yeah, this this is the plot going down here, and then have the antagonist effectively like a T junction, the car that zooms across their path, going, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> that it's just out of the blue that is connected, but that might be several streets down. Using that analogy, um, after it does a U-turn back on itself and meets up with something they hadn't twigged way back on the path that they completely missed. So the essentials we're talking about of having um, being prepared to run a game, a, a session of a game, we're just talking about a few basic essentials, a few NPCs yeah. with some agenda, uh, um, a sort of a starting point. Mm-hmm. And a purpose, generally. Yeah. So they have the have a reason for the direction they're going in. Yeah, and, yeah. Three, and three weeks of research. Well, in my case, while you were both looking at me, <laughs> sometimes it's taken me more than a month before I even hit pen to paper. Um, and and once, I mean, depending on what you're doing with this scenario, again, you know, this this might apply if you're developing a convention scenario or if this is something you want to submit to a publisher. You know, the, the next stage of it, of course, is play testing. Um, now, this can be, you know, what I was saying before about developing it further by, you know, playing it with a, a friendly group, um, playing it at conventions, um, or, you know, one of the most useful things to do is once you've got it written up in a, a relatively good form, give it to someone else to run, mm-hmm. and then you'll really find out what works and what doesn't, because all the assumptions that were just in your own head are gone. Mm-hmm. This can also, uh, dear listener, be potentially the longest part of yeah. the whole process. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. I'm working on a scenario at the minute that I've been playtesting for over a year, and it's only now coming to the point where I'm pretty much happy with it to begin writing it up. Gosh. 
But again, that's I think just it was some perfectionist. Uh, Sandy Peterson himself, who said words to the effect that, and I'm not sure on the timing, but it was something to the effect of, if he was writing a scenario for himself, it might take six hours. If he was writing it for someone else to run, it might take six days. And if he's writing it for publication, it might take six weeks. Yeah. Um, and Because there is yeah. very much those, those steps. If I'm running it for myself, I can do it off the side of notes, which is a scribble down that only I would understand. If I'm writing it for one of you two, I'd need to write a bit more, but I know that you can come to me and say, that bit doesn't make sense. What does that mean? Or, or I can use terms that I know you'll understand, but, but if, if it's being written for publication, then it needs to have a whole another, you know, it needs to all be, um, well, proofread and edited for a start, but um, it needs to be far more in-depth, give far more detail. I can't assume that anyone's going to understand my references or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the actual act of getting the words down on paper is a relatively quick thing, but finding the, the, the bits that are important to put down into communicating them clearly and then going back and taking out all the stuff that doesn't actually need to be there is the time-consuming part. And in the... Um, the Keeper's Advice chapter in the 7th Ed book, um, I was keen to put a bit in about how to use a published scenario and kind of do the reverse of this. So when you've got a published scenario, you've got, you know, thousands of words. And what I find best when I'm, I'm, I'm using a published scenario is to sit down and take notes from it. And what I kind of end up with is a set of notes which are kind of like the ones that I would have written if I were running the scenario for the first time. Um, just the bare bones. Reverse engineer it, essentially. Go back to its initial kernel of, in, kernel of process. Absolutely. But I think there's a... Certainly when I sort of... Years ago, I can remember um, going through a published scenario and it can be very hard to distinguish what's essential and what isn't. Yeah. So if there's an NPC... Uh, he's a caretaker, he's got a dog, he's an old fellow, he's got grey hair, he wears a blue shirt. You know, all this stuff is in the scenario. But really, you can pare it down to, okay, what is essential here? He's a caretaker, and he saw someone come in a car yesterday, in a yellow car. Okay, all that description about him is irrelevant. I can just put caretaker, old fella. And, and, yeah. and make the rest up on the fly. That, that's right. I mean, yeah, describe him as you will at the time, unless any of that is really vital. Right, the, the only tip I'd say there is if it turn, you know, if it's a character who's likely to turn up again in the scenario and you want to be consistent about a couple of the details, then write them down at the time when you're running it. Mm-hmm. You know, make a note, you know, if, if, if you've said that this guy has got you know, a mop of flaming red hair, just make a note of that so that the next time he turns up he isn't suddenly bald. But chances are, having read that scenario, you will have a picture of the caretaker that the author wrote about, and you'll have that in your head when it comes to running the scenario. So it wasn't it wasn't that the person writing the scenario didn't need to write all that stuff. But if oh, you yeah. can just put a couple of keywords to remind you, you know, the general gist of it, mm. um, that's enough. Especially when you say about trying to work out what's important and what's not. I know in my um, instances of stuff that I've written that I've deliberately made a note by say either making it in bold underlining it and making sure this is important even when i'm re- writing stuff up for publication i'll put a note or like a sidebar afterwards and says honestly guys this bit is important pay attention read this bit yeah so make it blatant to them yeah yeah if you forget everything else remember this one bit mm-hmm. yeah but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely concur about you know the the amount of extra work involved in writing it up for other people to use. And the, I mean, the good thing is, I, I 
I, I'd imagine that most of the people listening to this who are writing scenarios for their own groups are never going to be in a position or you know, unlikely to be in a position uh, to to uh, you know, need to do that. But, I mean, if you find yourself you know, pitching in a scenario to a convention booklet or submitting it to um, you know, one of these, these uh, free magazines online, Proto Dimension's a good one, um, or um, you know, pitching it to a publisher ultimately, uh, then yes, you are going to have to get used to the idea of communicating these ideas clearly, and that that that, that takes a surprising amount of practice. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's worth getting advice from people who've done it before, and uh, and if you can find a good editor who's going to help you knock it into shape, yeah, you know, that, that's that's a godsend. And also prepared to bounce you bounce that scenario potentially back and forth because I know I've had some instances myself where I've submitted what I think is a perfectly fine work and then it's bounced around between three or four different versions between myself and the publisher until the point where both of us are happy with it. Yeah. Mm. So it yeah might, that's, that's pretty standard. Yeah, it yeah. might not. Yeah, don't think you can send it in once once you've edited it, it's done. There's there's a lot more work after that as well. But I mean, this this does sort of lead into the idea of what you do with uh, the scenario once you've written it up. Um, so, I mean, if you do have ideas of, of, of publishing it, that, yeah, as I mentioned, there are plenty of avenues out there. Uh, there are certainly uh, places that will host your scenarios free of charge on their, their websites. I think there's quite a few on York Sothoth, aren't there? Um, yeah, pr- Proto Dimension, like, uh, which I mentioned before, is always looking for Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Um, and yeah, I mean, th- th- there seems to be a real explosion of Call of Cthulhu publishing at the moment. Mm-hmm. There are you know, a- a- any number of publishers, licensed publishers, uh, who are, you know, are producing lots of material. I think the way each of us got into that, yeah, and, and this is you know, probably worth pointing out to anyone who's got ideas along those lines, is by running lots of stuff that's good at conventions and getting to meet publishers that way. Uh, and, and making contacts with publishers. Yeah, I think way. if you're going to run, um, if, if you're going to write scenarios for publication, I think exposing yourself to lots of different players um, and, and conventions is the best place to do that. Visibility, um, reputation. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of experience of play as well, because if you just run it for your group and so on, there, there are lots of different styles of play and different mm, yes. people who run scenarios and play them in different ways. And um, yeah, at least yeah, it can be a bit of a. Um, sort of trial by fire running at conventions yeah I mean, running it for the same group leads you to a set of assumptions which won't apply to the the, the greater world mm. yes not, not 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 every group calls the police and then sets everything on fire <laughs> why are you looking at me why <laughs> but why? they should it works so well <laughs> if you're going to use um, a certain location particularly a house uh, in your scenario then it's a good idea to start with the floor plan of the house before you write the description, because you write the description, and then afterwards you think, oh, I need a house just like this, and that's really hard. So just find a basic floor plan and then base your description around that. Equally, if you're writing the description of an NPC, if you're going to use a picture in a handout, get the picture first, and then if you must write a description, write a description, or don't bother. Another... um, thing you might consider when when writing a scenario is how you can seed future scenarios within your scenario so it's easy to kind of bring in things that they've already played that your players have already played but if you're thinking well you know in a few months time i'm going to run masks then you know in the scenario that you're running now why not throw in your good friend jackson elias he's a great guy you know, or some artefact or, or something, or book, or something, that's going to mean nothing particular now. How about this wooden mask? 
Yeah. yeah put just it try, put it on. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it kind of it builds in a continuity in, into your game that will make it feel much more rewarding rather than, oh, that was one scenario, that's done, and that's all finished. Um, it kind of provides a, a more natural sort of flow to, <laughs> flow to the, the game, I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I mentioned earlier about the potential line of scenario, um, scenarios that I'll be working on, that there is this interlinking thread that connects mm. between them. But they work individually as standalone episodes, but then if you play them all, you start to subtly realise that, hang on a minute, that guy, he was part of this group that is also mentioned in this one, but it was a different guy working for them, and they were doing something completely different, over it, and gradually building up that jigsaw puzzle from the little bits of info that you've been given. I also assume that all the player characters are going to be destroyed by the scenario, so I don't bother. Yeah, you're just, you're just a psycho. You just want to kill everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're writing a one-off that's, that's a one-off, then yes, but often people are writing a scenario that's going to, you know, yeah. with players that are going to continue yes. one game to another. Weirdos. Yeah, freak out. TPK should be your middle name, really, shouldn't it? <laughs> I think another um, important aspect to Call of Cthulhu scenarios particularly is don't have... All of the exciting things having happened before the game starts. Oh, oh God, yes. yes. And then the players come in and discover, wow, lots of exciting stuff happened here. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly also, realize. as kind of a joiner to that, don't have it such that exciting stuff could happen, but it's the player's job to stop it happening. <laughs> my God, we when, won't let anything when, exciting happen. Where have happen. I heard that before? <laughs> I was just thinking that... I'm channeling Rich Stokes, I think. No, you're channeling me. Oh, am I? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yes. the, the number of times I've had this rant at you, Paul. <laughs> Especially when you realise, oh, you've written this whole intricate detailed plot. Yeah, that should, that background should have been the scenario! Yeah. There's two things that can happen when you read scenarios, I think. Two, two things that... When you've written your scenario, take a look at it, and all those NPCs that are doing the interesting stuff... Ask yourself, you know what? Could they be the player characters playing those interesting yes. roles? Rather than having a cast of inter- NPCs doing interesting things and then having some independent investigators come in and be employed to sort it out. Why not have your player characters be take those roles? You've had this discussion with me recently, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and the second thing is, all that interesting stuff that's in the prelude that kind of is your is the kind of the kicker for the characters to get involved. Could you take a step back in time and actually have the player characters involved in all that interesting stuff? Especially if it's more interesting than what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. So do they need to be investigating the aftermath? Or could they be involved in the, you know, the, the, the terrible things and then you know, be picking up the pieces afterwards? Yeah, and as, as an adjunct to all that, one thing that I would like to throw in is, for the love of God, do not put NPCs in charge of player characters. No, never, yeah, ever, ever. Tips, We need your help. <laughs> I was more thinking, hey, Professor Starkweather, or hey, oh, yeah. Professor Moore. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, 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 was, that was pretty much what came mm-hmm. to mind there, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I find there's there's nothing more frustrating in a game than you know just being given little missions to do by by NPCs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, I, I I want the game to be about my character. Yeah, I don't want him to feel like a member of the supporting cast. Yeah, if we're going to play Jaws, I want the three of us to be the three on the boat. Yes, not. I'm bags on the guy who says we want a big boat. boat. 
you, you inve- you're the investigators, and um, well, we need you to go and investigate what happened to to Quinn's boat because um, he uh, he got eaten by a shark, and um, they're all dead. And we need you to take a little boat out and see what happened in the sea. You're going to need a bigger boat. The shark's dead, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the sequels say otherwise. <laughs> there were no sequels. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it could be worse. It could be, um, you know, the, 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 these three characters are about to go out on their boat trip, but they've hired you to do the stock taking first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we need our supply of pennicans and har- harmonicas. Mm-hmm. We've got our harmonicas. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, we, we we should take a step back here and say that we all actually do like Beyond the Mountains of Man. Oh, it's, it's a you w- don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to be politic here. <laughs> it's, it, to be fair, it is a wonderful scenario. It's a wonderful idea, but there are certain tweaks that make it even better. Yeah, and the, what the main thing is there make the leaders of the expedition the PCs. I mean, I had a great time playing it. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. I, uh, no, I, 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 I did enjoy it. I, it was just that aspect of the NPCs being in charge that pissed me off. I mean, this is kind of another another show here, maybe. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the reason I liked that, I think, was because of the story that I felt that developed around my player character mm. um, rather than purely the story of the scenario. I mean, that was pretty cool. But um, it was that we played it for a long time and, and I, you know, I really got into my... Um, uh, my investigator and, and his story, and um, really kind of, yeah, it was great. Um, it, is one, it is one of the better campaigns I've played, definitely. Yeah. So, um, we hope that's given you some ideas of uh, at least how we work, and maybe it's given you some ideas as to you know, uh, how you can use some of these approaches yourself, or <laughs> at the very least, comfort to you in the fact that you know, what you're doing isn't wrong because everyone does it differently anyway. I would take that away as the main thing, actually. However you do it, it's fine. Think of how... I mean... Think of how people write books. Not that I particularly know how people write books, but from my understanding, they all approach it in different ways. Yeah. Um, when asked how he gets his ideas, Stephen King says they come in the mail, which is which is as good an answer as any. That's the question he gets asked regularly, of course. And, and one could ask that of a scenario, right? Where do you get your ideas? You get them wherever you get them. Just go with whatever you feel. If you want to do lots of research, do lots of research. If you don't, don't. Um, just make it convincing. Make some notes. Um, think through what your players might do. And um, sit down. Play it. And and fairly that, you know, if you're really stuck for ideas, rip off the plot of your favourite film. By the time your players have messed around with it, it's going to turn into something different anyway. I've seen that used plenty of times. Yeah, yeah don't be afraid to plagiarise, yeah. absolutely. Best, best um, form of flattery. Yeah, if you're writing for publication, it's a bit different, but if you're, if you're running for your group at home, yeah, plagiarise the fuck out of things. Mm-hmm. But even, yeah, whoever you're presenting it to... By the time you, yeah, by the time it's been through, you've processed it through. It's probably going to be so different to the original thing anyway. Yeah, yeah. So everyone has their own start methods and tools 
Thinking of which, I definitely need to put up show notes of the flamethrower that's being sat, at, um, sat looking at me throughout the whole scenario. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> Paul gave us a very literal warm-up exercise before uh, we recorded tonight. It's that fine. In, that involved a flamethrower and uh, <laughs> a jet of flame about a foot and a half long. Yeah, this is one of the tools he works with. Seriously, kids, we're not joking. We have the photo- photographic evidence to prove <laughs> this. He's yeah. been looking at me all the way through the whole recording. <laughs> but, but somehow we survived the last hour. <laughs> This is about the only time I haven't picked up the aspect on fire. lighter. <laughs> hey, go on, move away. <laughs> so, you can find us, there's the good friends of Jackson Elias, on Facebook, uh, Google+, and uh, YouTube. And you can find us as the good friends of JE on Twitter, uh, because Twitter handles suck. You can also find us on our very own website, blasphemoustomes.com, uh, where you can find... All sorts of things that we've written. Yes, so it's uh, good night from me. Cheerio. And farewell. <laughs> <laughs>